journey. How y'all doing? Great to see all of you, especially if you're a guest. We're really, really delighted to get to be with you, with God, uh, for a time of worship and celebration. I'm so bummed that it's snowing out there. Are you bummed? Like, seriously, have you had enough already? Like, enough already, yeah. But just think about it this way. Maybe, just maybe, uh, God in his sovereignty is getting all the snow out of the collective meteorological system so that there's no snow at next Saturday's Easter egg hunt, right? So is it maybe like positive spin on all that, right? And I'm bummed that it's snowing, but something that totally lights me up is that next weekend is Easter. Like, yes, which means that next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we're going to celebrate in significant fashion the fact that Jesus died on Friday. He took all our sin, all our condemnation upon himself, and death couldn't keep him. The grave could not contain him. He rose on Easter Sunday, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And so together, collectively, next weekend, we're going to blow the roof off of this place and celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And there's a few things that I'd like you to think about as we ramp up to Easter. Some of them you saw on the weekend update, but I just want to kind of reiterate a couple of those things. First of all is this one, who are you bringing? Right? Like, who are you bringing to all of the Easter week gatherings the Good Friday Stations of the Cross deal, like, who are you bringing with you? Like, grab somebody and bring them with you. 25 minutes, you walk through that thing, stepping through the Stations of the Cross. Who are you bringing with you? The Easter egg hunt, who are you bringing with you? Like, those neighbors or those kids that live over there, that family, you know, you know the family I'm talking about. Who are you bringing with you? Five weekend worship celebrations, two on Saturday, three on Sunday. Who are you bringing with you. And the truth is that Jesus Christ came to seek and save those who are what? Lost. That's exactly right. Which means that our Easter celebrations, all of them, aren't just about us getting our saved selves there and like calling it good. There's this piece that is like, okay, who am I bringing along with me? Who am I inviting? I'm working on a couple of people. I'm working on a couple of families, and in my role, it's a little interesting because sometimes people see me coming and they're like, oh, I'm going to duck right over it, right? And so uh, I sometimes have to work at it a little bit harder or be a little more shrewd, maybe, uh, but I'm, I'm still working on them. And just like me, you have people in your life who you really want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who you really want to engage in a spiritual conversation, who you really, really want to be in heaven with you someday, right? And just think about how a couple of key, maybe just one key invitation to some Easter week gathering might be what changes the trajectory of that person, that family, their whole eternity changes because you stepped out and you made an invitation. Maybe your invitation will kick your conversation into, your spiritual conversation into high gear with them. So just invite, ask, step out and Take a risk, right? It'll be worth it. We put together a bunch more of those invite packets for you. Uh, They're out in the lobby, all over the lobby. And uh, take those and use them. They do some of the work for you. They don't do all the work for you, but they do some of the work. The scratch and sniff stickers do a whole bunch of the heavy lifting, don't they? Right? But they do some of the work for you. You still have to step out and you have to pray and you have to be bold and you have to take a risk and you have to ask, and I promise you, no matter how the invitation goes, even if you get like the door slammed in your face, you'll be glad you asked. I promise you'll be glad that you asked. And if, if they say yes, they're like, well, yeah, I'll go, 
yeah, I'll go with you. Like, think about how great that would be. Who are you bringing with you? And then there's still opportunities for you to serve at the egg hunt next Saturday morning. I mean, like, what a way for us as a church community to love our city and love our valley, right? It's like the world's largest Easter egg hunt. I don't know if that's true, but it feels like 60,000 eggs is a lot of eggs. It's at least Bozeman's largest Easter egg hunt. And who doesn't want to be a part of making that happen? There's lots of ways for you to serve around that. And some of you, you've been waiting and procrastinating and putting it off, and you're just like, oh, I don't know. Just, just go. Just go and serve and roll up your sleeves and get after it. And the same is true with kids' ministry. Five weekend worship experiences, five times for you to help serve our guests and their families in kids' ministry. Think about it like this. What if you brought uh, somebody to one of our weekend worship experiences? You brought your guests who you've been in conversation with. You brought someone with you to one and then you stayed and you served in kids' ministry or in some other way at the next one. Right? That's like a good rhythm. I'm going to attend one, I'm going to bring some guests with me, and then I'm going to serve at the next one. It's a great rhythm that will still get you home in time to eat your Easter ham. Right? And who doesn't love a good Easter ham? Right? Which, by the way, that's weird to me. I'm just going to say this is a freebie, no charge for this one. But like Jesus died on Good Friday, he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, and we eat pork products. To sell, like, that, that's weird. I mean, no charge for that. If you want to serve the Easter egg hunt or around kids' ministry some other way, grab one of those guest information cards in your chair pocket in front of you, write egg or kids or serve at Easter, your contact information. Someone from our leadership team, I promise, will be in touch with you early this week to set you into a serving assignment. Speaking of eating pork products, we're in a series that we call well, feast, right? Talking about the feasts of the Lord. And the feast of the Lord that really helps us capture the background of Jesus' death on Good Friday more than any other of the feasts is this one called Passover. And before we talk about Passover, I want to ask you, uh, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just sort of metabolize this in your head and in your heart. Have you ever been slogging through some difficult thing in your life? Right, like some challenge, some pain, some tragedy, some uncertainty, you know, some difficult thing. And have you ever found yourself asking the question, is God really, truly doing anything here? Like you're, you're just up to here in the challenge quotient and you've had it and you don't know if you can make it another day. If another bad thing happens, you feel like, you know, it's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And you're just in that moment. And have you ever had one of those moments where you're going like, God, are you really doing anything here? God, are you really at work? Are you really moving? Are you really, are you really even like there? And if anything like me, you absolutely have. Right, where you're just up to your eyeballs in it and God, really? Are you really doing something? Are you really doing anything? Are you really, really? And the nation of Israel, who, if you recall, were God's chosen, set-apart, chosen, set-apart people by God himself, you know what? They had that exact same experience. Just think about it. For more than 400 years, the Jewish people had lived as slaves in captivity in Egypt. 
And so for more than 400 years, you can be assured that it was like this one long continual season of the entire nation and people of God, entire nation of Israel, crying out to God, saying, are you really doing anything, God? Are you really there? Are you really at work? Are you really, really, God? 400 years of slavery, 400 years. We're making bricks, God. And not because we want to make bricks. God, are you really there? Are you really doing anything? And about 400 plus years into that ordeal, what do you know? God breaks through and God breaks in. The time had finally arrived for God to deliver his people from their slavery, from their captivity, and for him to bring them back into the land that he had promised them, the promised land, they called it. Well, how, how's God going to do that? Well, he taps this one guy on the shoulder. His name was Moses. And he says, hey, Moses, I want you to announce these plagues to the Pharaoh, to the ruler. There's going to be ten plagues, like one by one. And the goal of these plagues is to, like, convince Pharaoh and the leadership of the nation of Egypt to let you go, to, to get rid of you. And so one plague at a time. And they're nasty deals. You do not want these. And one by one by one by one by one, until they got to the number nine, and, and Pharaoh still wasn't convinced. He hadn't succeeded in winning the heart of the Egyptians over. And so he says, all right, Moses, one more shot. Tenth and final plague, judgment on the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you, he'll force you all to leave. And they're like, yes, sweet. Tell all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And God's like, as long as you're leaving, you may as well pillage the nation of Egypt. Just take, they haven't been paying you for 400 years of brick making, so it's payday. Take it away. Parenthetically, now the Lord, wait, go back, because I, yeah, now the Lord had caused the Egyptians, to look favorably on the people of Israel. And Moses was considered a very great man in the land of Egypt, respected by Pharaoh's officials and the Egyptian people. Like, they hold this guy in the highest regard. Moses had announced to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, at midnight tonight I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every, whoa, every family in Egypt. From the oldest son of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the oldest son of his loveliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has heard before or will ever hear, ever hear again. But among the Israelites it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. And you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. All the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall to the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg. Hurry and take all your followers with you. Only then will I go. And then burning with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. It got real clear real fast that God was doing something, didn't it? It got real clear real fast that God was on the move, that God was there, that God was breaking in and 
breaking through. And in Exodus chapter 12, then, God gives his people, the Israelites, his chosen, set-apart, special nation, these really explicit instructions so that their household, unlike Pharaoh's and the rest of the Egyptians, would not be struck down by that final plague. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. I I don't know anything about what that would be like. If a family is too small, we're like a whole animal family, just in case you're wondering. We like to share, but there's just not enough. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, no defects. Watch this. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. You're going to kill the one-year-old lamb or young goat, and then you're going to take some of its blood, and you're going to smear it up here, and you're going to smear it down here. It's kind of macabre, isn't it? That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire, eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next. No leftovers. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods, little g of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will, here's where the whole name of this feast comes from, I will pass over you. If I see this, God says, if I see this blood, I'm passing over, I'm leaving you alone. No judgment, no death for you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. God gives these really specific instructions. You go select a one-year-old male lamb or young goat in its prime. It's supposed to be perfect. It's without flaw. It's without defect. And you're, here's what you're supposed to do with this thing. You take this lamb or this young goat out of the flock on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, it's called, and you keep it as a pet You keep this thing as a pet until the 14th day of the month. It's like you're going to invite this one-year-old lamb, this one-year-old goat into your house. And you're going to give this sweet little lamb, that sweet little goat special. You're probably going to name it. It's going to be in your house and your kids are going to play with it and it's going to nibble at you. And you might feed it out of a bottle And you're going to pet it. And you're going to give it special care and attention. And in those days, you're going to watch and you're going to make sure that it's a perfect animal. No blemish, no flaws, no faults. And you know what else is going to happen? You're going to get real, real personally attached to it. 
because it, it's in your house and you're taking special care of it and you're feeding it out of a bottle and it's nibbling at you and you're laughing and the kids are playing around with it in the living room. This isn't just another animal, random animal from the flock where there's a whole bunch. You've now made this one special and you've invited it into your house. It's, your, it's like it's your pet. Sweet little pet. And our wheels turn and we're like, why in the world? Because we know it's coming for sweet little pet. Why in the world would God want them ask that of his people? Seriously, you want us and our kids and our families to get like all attached to this thing and then you want us to slaughter it. Oh, why? Because God wants to very deeply impress upon his people the incredibly costly nature of that sacrifice. So that little sweet innocent animal is going to die in your place. And God wants them to like feel that. It's not just a random animal, it, 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 it's the pet. And on the evening of the 14th, just as the warm afternoon sun is settling over the horizon, all those pets, the lambs and the goats, are going to be brought in a very public slaughtering. Killed, not just by the dads going off to do like the mean dad thing, right? The big knife. They're going to be slaughtered by the whole assembly. Every, everybody. The blood is on everybody's hands. All the people are responsible for the death of all of those animals. It's us. The collective us. And so there's this communal killing deal. But then each individual family is going to take some of the blood from their animal and they're going to put it on the doorposts. And by so doing, they're saying, God, we trust you. We believe in you. You're God and we're not. And so we're declaring that in this sort of gruesome way. We've got blood dripping down our doorposts. Now, and you know what happens at that moment, the moment they put the blood on their doorpost, that lamb, that innocent, perfect, sweet pet lamb became their substitute. Making it possible for God's judgment to pass over them. And you know what everyone said? They said, God's at work. God's doing something. God's on the move. Look, God's with us. God's for us. God's saving us. And it wasn't even a question anymore. They knew that God was at work. And look at Exodus 12, 42. Look what God says. On this night, the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. So this night belongs to him. And it must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites from generation to generation. And you know what's at the core of the Passover? It's the lamb. The lamb is at the core of the Passover. It's central. Without the lamb, there's no deliverance. And God also specified three really symbolic foods to be eaten that Passover night over that Passover meal. Exodus chapter 12, verse 8. That same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. The sacrifice is a young lamb or young goat depicting innocence. 
It's to be roasted over a fire portraying the judgment that's befalling the animal instead of the firstborn. Matzah, like we take communion with. Unleavened bread, no yeast in that bread is to be eaten. Symbolizing the purity of the sacrifice. Pure. Unblemished because yeast and leaven represents sin. It's perfect. And bitter herbs, why in the world would God want them to eat bitter herbs? Because they taste, like why? Seriously, we have to eat that? That's gross. God wants them even to taste the suffering of the lamb. He wants them to taste the suffering of the lamb. It's, it's bitter. It's unpleasant. And he wants them to, all their faculties, to be engaged. And God says, look, this Passover deal, I want you to keep it forever and ever and ever. It's a memorial service. It's a worship service that's a memorial service. And those elements, the lamb, the matzah, the bitter herbs, they play this really important part in that service. It's called a seder, by the way. Each of those elements, deeply symbolic, so that the story of God's deliverance is rehearsed from generation to generation to generation to generation. God's at work, God's at work, God's at work, God's at work, God's at work. And there's all these steps to the Passover worship service. The Israelites would step through them. But at the end of it all, they'd sing a song. The Passover Seder ends with a worship song, a, a hymn. Today, if you go to a Passover Seder, it's going to end with the singing of a song. In Jesus' day, his Passover meal ended with the singing of a song. Look at what happens. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. That's talking about Jesus, his disciples. They've just celebrated the Passover, which, by the way, did you know what Jesus did at that Passover meal? Instead of the lamb, Jesus puts himself in the center of the table. I mean, he doesn't literally, like, crawl up onto the table and put himself in the middle of it, but he says, it, it's my body, it's my blood. No more, no more lambs. It's my body, it's my blood. Body broken, blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to kill any more lambs. You don't have to get all attached to your pet lamb and then take it out. And, uh -uh. Jesus says, it's me. It's me. My body, my blood, shed, broken for you. All of you. All of humanity. For all time. And they sang this hymn at the close of that. Jesus and his disciples sang a, a hymn. Have you ever thought about that? Right, like People wonder, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus sing? Right? Matthew, he's writing his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. They would have instantly known, oh yeah, Passover Seder, Passover meal. I know the song they sing. They knew. Lots of us don't. It's Psalms. They sang Psalm 115 to 118 to close this Passover Seder. It's the latter half of what the Jews call the Hillel. The Hillel are the praise Psalms. They're the songs of praise, of worship, of adoration to God. And so you go like, oh, okay, cool. Jesus sang a song with his buddies at the conclusion of the Passover Seder. So what's the content? What are, what are the words? What exactly did Jesus and his closest friends and ministry partners sing in the hours immediately before he's betrayed by one of his own, arrested, beaten, and sent to the cross to die for the sins of humanity? What did they sing? Look at it. Psalm 118. This is the very end of the song. This is what they sang. Jesus sang this. 
The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Whoa. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Really? Jesus saying this. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Jesus sang that song, those words, just hours before he was the fulfillment of that song. Whoa. And now, how about that last line? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. He sang those words just before he went out to be betrayed by one of his own, arrested, beaten, nailed to a cross. He sang, give thanks to the Lord. Seriously. For he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And this week as I was putting this all together, I was prepping for this message, I, I just like froze up thinking about that reality of what Jesus sang in the hours before the unthinkable unfolded. Right, like here's Jesus and he's the Messiah. He knows he's the Messiah. There's a bunch of people who were around who didn't believe, didn't know, didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah, but he knew. And he knows he's going to die. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to get betrayed, stabbed in the back by one of his very closest friends. He knows he's going to have the tar beat out of him, nails driven through his wrists, driven through his feet. He knows what's coming, and he knows that it's going to be brutal beyond imagination. And he sang these words, I give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And he sang those words with complete and total integrity. Jesus wasn't just mouthing those words. I don't know about you, but do you ever come in here to one of these times and we put these lyrics on these screens, right, and the band plays fantastic music, and have you ever had those times where, where you just sing the words but you don't really mean them? Or you're, you're just singing them because everybody else is and the music catches you up in it and you're like, okay, I better sing. Maybe if you're a young guy, there's a cute girl sitting next to you, and she's singing, and you're like, well, I'm going to impress her with my deep, manly baritone. I might get a date out of the singing of the, right? We're just belting the song out, and your heart isn't anywhere near those words. That didn't happen with Jesus. He meant every single, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. I know it's coming, God, but I'm choosing to give thanks to you for you are good. You're really good and your faithful love. He's talking to his dad. I thank you, dad. You're good. Dad, your faithful love endures forever. He meant it. The cross is like right here in Jesus' windshield. 
And he sang those words with complete and total integrity. He meant them. They were authentic. And it causes me to go like, well, how in the world did he do that? How could he sing those words and mean them all that he was facing? He's about to be killed. He could sing those words because he knew he believed that God was at work. That God was doing something. That God was on the move. That God wasn't hanging him out to dry. That there was something bigger going on behind the scenes. And he knew no matter what, through thick and thin, he trusted his dad. That he was up to something. And it was going to be painful and it wasn't going to be fun. And it was going to come at great personal expense to him. But he was okay with it. Because he knew that God was doing something. Something spectacular, something beyond the imagination. And today, we're all facing stuff. If we could put on these screens everything that we collectively were facing, we, we'd like be in a pile on the floor, wouldn't we? Right? Because just what you're carrying by yourself is enough to put you in a pile on the floor. Some of us are facing stuff on the scale that like, like we just can't even fathom. We've been on this long, long, long stormy journey, lots of us. Some of us have had to shoulder burdens that nobody should or really even could ever carry. Some of us have bid farewell to lifelong partners. Lots of us have been robbed of lifelong dreams. They've been like dashed on the rocky shore of reality. And where are we now? Some of us have been given bodies that can't sustain the spirit that God set inside of us. Some of us have spouses that can't or won't tolerate your faith. They're like, no. Some of us have bills that far outnumber the paychecks. Some of us have challenges that far, far outweigh the strength we have to face them. And I, I know lots and lots of us are just flat, tired, had it, up to here, swimming, drowning, and so we say, in the midst of all that, God, are you really doing anything? God, are you really at work? God, are you really even there? And the answer is, of course he is. Of course he is. Of course God is doing something. Of course God is at work. Of course God is on the move. And he's doing something that is spectacular beyond what we can imagine. And so here's what I think. If Jesus can sing those words when he was facing what he was facing that night, then no matter what we're facing, no matter how dire it seems, we can sing, we should sing those same words in the midst of whatever it is that's happening with us. Because God's still at work, God's still on the move, God's still doing something, you can trust your dad. He's seeing us through. Your heavenly father, big daddy, he's seeing you through. And he's not leaving you and he's not abandoning you. He's not dumping you out on your head. He's got you. And how many of us is God just carrying along right now? Because that's all we got. It's who he is. And he's at work. 
And he is the spectacular God of the universe who's doing something so great that you're hardly going to be able to believe how good it is. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. It's true. And so I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And we're going to sing those words. And I'm going to ask you not to like sing this all like lame. I'm going to ask you to like blow this thing up. Because it's who God is. You can trust your dad. He is good. He is on the move. He is at work. Let's blow this thing up.
take a seat if you would and would you just go right to prayer just close your eyes and bow your heads because here's what's true Jesus is the Passover lamb scripture records it history echoes it and yet this one final Passover question remains and it's the most important question of all of our lives is he your Passover lamb Really, is Jesus your Passover lamb? Have you placed your full faith and trust in the Messiah and the Savior of the world? His name was Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on the cross is your hope. Your hope for abundant life here and now as well as eternal life forever and ever. Is Jesus your Passover lamb? And even the ancient Israelites, they were required to individually apply blood to their doorposts. Just like today, men and women, boys and girls must individually make a decision concerning the Lamb of God because there's no deliverance without the Lamb. It's Him. And His name is Jesus. And if He's not yet your Passover Lamb, why why don't you just settle it today once and for all? Just land it. And you can do that. You can declare your faith and trust in Jesus Christ by praying along with me. Right now, I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, I need you to be my Passover lamb. I need you to be my savior. And Jesus, right here, right now, today, I make you my savior, I make you my Lord, and I say thank you. Jesus, I've been trying for a long time to save myself, to be good enough, to try hard enough, to be strong enough. And I just fall short again and again and again. And so, it's only Jesus by you that I come to the Father. It's only Jesus by you that I receive once and for all forgiveness. Because you died. You said you don't have to kill any more Passover lambs. Because Jesus, you said it's me. And so thank you, Jesus for being my Passover lamb, my savior. Thank you for taking my sins and for dying the cruelest death I can possibly imagine for me. Here I am, all of me, take me, all of me. And if you prayed with me just then to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing, nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal around here, we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, nobody's looking around this room. It's you, me, and God right now. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, to make Jesus your Passover lamb, would you right now raise your hand and lock eyes with me? Yeah, way to go, right there. You can do that right now. And over here, geez, yeah, yeah, all of you, right there. There's like five of you, whoa. Way to go, and you right here, yes. And in the back to my left, keep them up, would you? And you there and there and there, yes. Yes, he is your Passover lamb. Yeah, in the back, yeah. Way to go, yes. Over there, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's your Passover lamb. Once for all, you too, yes, right here, yes. And here, yeah, yes, your Passover lamb. Yes, in the, over there, yeah, way to go. That little hand back there, yes, way to go. And there, yes. Yep. 
absolutely. He's your, yeah, absolutely. He's your Passover lamb, yes. Here, yes, absolutely, yes. Jesus, thanks for dying in our place, for making a way for us to be delivered from our mess, our sin. Jesus, thank you, especially for these who are saying to you today, I'm in need of the Savior. Thank you for these who are confessing their sin today and saying it's only by Jesus that I come to the Father. For these who are asking you, Christ, to be their Passover lamb once for all, we celebrate with you, God. We celebrate with these today whose eternities have been transformed like in a moment. Thank you, Father. And Jesus, would you help all of us? We all slog through life, and it's hard. Life is so, so hard. But Jesus, help us sing with you, with authenticity, with a fullness of heart, with integrity, Jesus. Giving thanks to you, God, for your good. All the time you're good. And Jesus, we bank on that reality that your love endures forever. We're hanging on to you. We're hanging on to you.